Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and in addition to podcasting, I'm a leadership coach, a mastermind facilitator, a best-selling author, and a speaker. I love taking these nonprofit leadership topics on the road or into your Zoom room. So if you need someone at your next conference or workshop, check out my new speaking page at PattonMcDowell.com for more information. Well, I know you're going to enjoy another fantastic conversation in this episode with Andrew Olson, who returns to the path after his enormously successful visit last time. It was episode number 145, in which we tackled toxic leadership in the nonprofit sector. Well, Andrew has more wisdom to share, and this time we're going to dive into a staple of most nonprofit organizations and their revenue plan, which is direct response fundraising. Well, the first thing Andrew is going to explain, of course, is what is direct response fundraising and how many of the high-volume efforts you might be employing in your annual fund or direct mail campaigns, how they may, in fact, not be effective. He explains the inner workings of this process and what questions you need to be asking, especially if you're outsourcing these direct response activities to an outside firm. Once again, Andrew has brought great value and many takeaways, so don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode. It's number 198. Just go to the new podcast page at patentmcdowell.com and you will find all of the resources mentioned, including more information on Andrew and how you can access some of the great content he's producing through his books, his blog, his podcast, which is called the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, as well as more information on his new role as Senior Vice President at Dickerson Baker. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Andrew Olson. Andrew, thank you for joining me again on the path. Hey, Patton. Thanks again for having me. I always appreciate a chance to talk with you and to, to engage with your listeners as well. It's good to see you. Well, clearly, it, indeed, it is good to see you and our listeners clearly like what you're saying. In fact, the last time you visited your path to nonprofit leadership, in fact, it was episode number 145. It's one of the most popular episodes we've ever had. So I'm going to encourage our listeners to check it out. And that's where you and I tackled toxic leadership, uh, which is certainly a topic that you have articulated very well in some of the challenges and opportunities for improvement. So naturally, I want you back to talk about another topic that is top of mind for you. And of course, the headline for this episode has gotten their attention already. Andrew, the listeners are reading Dirty Little Secrets of direct response fundraising. So you got my attention. I'm sure you've got our listeners' attention. So let's start with that. For our nonprofit leaders that maybe aren't as immersed in some of the fundraising tactical activities, what is direct response fundraising? Sure thing. Yeah. So uh, direct response fundraising is is really, it's kind of what it sounds like, right? So it, it is fundraising tactics that are designed to elicit an immediate response. And the most common of these is gonna be direct mail, right? I send out a mailing to a list of of supporters and my expectation and and what I'm asking them to do is to respond directly back to me uh, via the envelope in that mailing. Uh, This extends to, you know, in the online world though, um, email campaigns, 
search and display marketing online, social media marketing. If you're asking for donations in social media, that's technically direct response fundraising. Um, and then at, at the very high investment levels and, and, you know, sort of scaled levels, you even have things like direct response television. So if you've seen a wounded warrior uh, project television commercial or a Shriners Hospital for Children or St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, those commercials are direct response television commercials that are designed to elicit a, a gift transaction uh, as the at the as the end result of that effort. Yeah, thank you. And and again, we're going to unpack that and and really dive into your expertise on some of the do's and don'ts maybe of this process. And I guess let me start with this as an opening question. As a nonprofit leader, and certainly staff and board as well might be thinking, Andrew, this is efficient. You know, why shouldn't I go for kind of a volume tactic and and get my message out to everybody? And surely I'll raise a lot of money, but <laughs> what are the dangers of uh, approaching things with uh, what I would call a volume fundraising uh, mentality? Yeah, you know, I, and and I will I will say that there was a time when the like mass volume strategy made sense, right? So, you know, I've been doing this work and particularly direct response work for almost 25 years now. And when I first started in, in this industry, the volume players made a lot of sense. They generated a ton of response. They generated a ton of revenue. And to your point, like it was efficient, right? You, you didn't have to add headcount. You didn't have to add, you know, a, a bunch of uh, staff time and effort to manage things. You could literally tell an outside vendor, go do this for me and, and you, you go focus on other things. But the, the marketplace has changed significantly. If we look at the drop off in giving from individual donors over the last 20 years, it's pretty staggering. And, uh, you know, I, I'm also looking at, at current data. So Pew Charitable Trust released some data at the middle of December last year. And one of the findings that they had when they looked at income distribution across um, those, those who are of high wealth, moderate, you know, mid-level wealth and, and low income the the most staggering thing that i saw is that people in middle income category have have lost almost 50% of their um, aggregate household income over the last 40 years wow. and those are exactly the people who give primarily through direct response right they're the people who write a $30 $50 $70 $100 check to a mailing so you know as i think about this when when i think about you know does it make sense to be high volume, highly efficient tactical program? There's a place for some of that, certainly in bringing new donors into your organization. Yeah. But the organizations that are not, that, that are focusing on relationships and bringing in maybe fewer donors, but donors who are more connected to mission, who are more inclined to give longer term and to to give bigger gifts over time, whether that's like writing one big check or a bunch of smaller checks, um, those organizations are, are the ones that are going to be able to withstand what's going on economically uh, and just from an overall kind of demographic shift in the world. And, uh, you know, we were talking, you and I off camera a few minutes ago, but one of the one of the things that I think gets lost here in this idea of like, let's just be big and efficient and go for volume. I was talking to a charity a few weeks ago and they they doubled the size of their donor base uh, during the pandemic. They went from like 15,000 to 30,000 donors. Yeah. And on its face, that looks really good, right? You look at that and you go, wow, that's amazing growth. 
But when we got under the hood and we started to look at retention data, uh, their retention rate was under 5%. So we think about that, all the money and the time and the effort that they spent to bring those new supporters into their organization to only hold on to 5% of them at at the top uh, over over a three-year period. I mean, that's it's staggeringly bad. And so that that's sort of my counterpoint and my perspective on on you know why it doesn't make sense at this point in our world to to be an organization that is is primarily securing your funding through high volume direct response. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And I, I guess I would underline that that you're not against donor acquisition tactics, of course. You know, we all need to have something to bring new folks into our ecosystems of um philanthropy. But you're right. I think we can stop at that high level metric, as you just said, for that organization. Right. We got we got we doubled the number of donors in our system. So clearly we must be doing things better. And you're, in fact, saying, no, you may not be. And well, and I guess the the origin of your article and other content, Andrew, around this dirty little secret is, unfortunately, some of the companies that help nonprofits Maybe they're, I guess they're at counter purpose, right, with nonprofits because they want volume too. Absolutely. You know, it's it's interesting. I, I wrote a, an article, <clears throat> excuse me, on LinkedIn a week or so ago about this very thing. And, and what prompted it was the, the CEO of a direct response fundraising agency had, had posted something saying uh, individual giving rates are down yet again this year, you know, multi-year decline in giving rates. And therefore, we as a, as a sector must lean more aggressively into new donor acquisition. And and my response to that was that's just the stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> right. um, and, and the reason is, you know, I, I likened it to an, an automobile. Right. If you have a a fuel leak, and and every time you put gas in the in the car, you're just leaking that fuel out the the you know fuel pump, and, and your tank's not holding that fuel. The solution is not go put more gas in the car. It's fix the hole. Exactly. And, and then once the hole's fixed, by all means, fill the tank up, right? Um, but, it, you know, we, we're we're doing ourselves a disservice. We're doing the mission a disservice. And we're doing donors a disservice by saying the solution to every problem is just more acquisition. It's just patently stupid. And and unfortunately, um, you know, it's, it's the result, that recommendation is the result of having a toolkit that's only full of hammers and and therefore thinking that every problem is a nail. Yeah, great examples and great analogies uh, in several cases. And, and you're right. Uh, we we stop too short and we just throw more gas in the tank, uh, not addressing the fundamental. This you know, We're dealing with the symptoms, right? Instead yep. of where the actual cause of this illness. And, and it seems to me, Andrew, this just leads fundamentally to more and more transactional relationships, right? High volume, low touch, um, is never going to develop the relationships. And I guess that's another thesis, I think, for you, right? Fundamentally, is is relationship building is where we need to be focused. It, it is. You know, I I and, and our team, we're really fond of the, the statement that, you know, relationships change everything. And we see that uh, on the service side of the world. You know, I, I've worked a lot with homeless shelters uh, and rescue missions in my career. And one of the things that that they find is that, you know, most of the people that come through their doors that need help, um, it, it's not just that they ran out of money, right? It's not just that they ran out of housing options. It's, you know, it's that they ran out of relationship. 
And, and when they lacked those relationships and that connectivity, that's what made them susceptible to other things like drug and alcohol addiction, uh, like, you know, made it easier to lose their job or lose their, their um, home and not have a safety net to fall back on because they didn't have those relationships. The same thing's true with our donors, right? In uh, what we see time and again is when we have a transactional level relationship with our supporters, um, the, the biggest, you know, the, the, the biggest challenge is we can't weather economic storms. We can't weather, you know, uh, challenges to mission or, or PR scandals, things of that nature, because we, we just don't have depth in those relationships. Whereas if you look at the organizations, like particularly like uh, education and medicine, where they understand that relationship is essential and they invest deeply in that before you even get to a solicitation, those organizations are able to maintain not just the relationships, but also the revenue, even through challenging times, because they focus first on that relationship. Yeah, well said. And again, if if, it, if we're not doing it for the philosophically right reasons, which we should, uh, there is, an, in fact, a bottom line reason for what yep. you're suggesting. And again, that can be lost in some of the flurry of some of these, uh, you know, frankly, companies who are indeed uh, incented by volume. But you mentioned your your company now uh, believes in these kind of uh, philosophies of, of relationship building. In fact, you have changed your, uh, I guess, your career path slightly since the last time you and I talked. So talk about uh, your new job, your new role, and uh, what you're doing. I have. And, and just to be really clear, because I don't want it to come off this way, um, I, I'm not trying to suggest that my previous employer does not understand relationships, right? It's this is this different mix. Um, I, I did make a move. Uh, I don't know. Gosh, it feels like it's about 90 days ago. It's probably a little <laughs> bit longer than that <laughs> right, um, right. to, to a firm called Dickerson Baker. And, and I know you've had, uh, I think Derek on, on your show before talking about um, maybe one of the donor insights studies that, that we've done in the past, but exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. You know, our, our, this firm is, is about 40 years old and it, it was built on the, idea of valuing relationship, right? Everything that we do is about, you know, high level donor relationship engagement, relationships inside organizations. You know, so so principally over the last 40 years, we've done um, capital campaign consulting, major gift consulting, executive search, and um, and helping organizations secure grant funding. You know, so th those things, again, if you think about them, they, they are very, very much uh, relational focused versus transactionally focused. And, and so for me, joining this organization just made a lot of sense. You know, I've known Derek and worked alongside him uh, where we've had shared clients for over a decade. And, uh, you know, we, we always talked about the idea that organizations don't necessarily get it right when they try to blend direct response fundraising and major gifts, capital campaigns, things of that nature. And it's really hard to get those companies to kind of play well in the sandbox because they have different incentives and they have different, um, you know, different perspectives on what it means to, to engage donors and to, to build relationship. So we just decided that, you know, if, if we, if we could envision a better way to do this, that it would probably be incumbent upon us to build it. And so that's, that's what I came over here to do is really just to, to build a fundraising platform that, um, that helps nonprofits, raise revenue and build relationships in a better way. Yeah, well put. And again, I'm excited for you. And as you, you said, uh, listening to Derek certainly gave me more insight as to what your firm is all about. And 
But I guess on a personal career planning journey, I'm sure, Andrew, there are a lot of people listening, maybe pondering, is it time for me to make my next move? And my sense is you weren't running away from something. You've been successful at every stop, but you were running towards something, I guess. But were there any characteristics of your decision? In other words, why make the move now? Yeah, uh, why make the move now? So uh, ironically, Derek and I have had this conversation several times over the last five years. And and it just, each time we would surface the conversation, it didn't feel right. Um, this last time when we, you know, sat down and, and you know, enjoyed a meal together in, in Asheville and uh, just, you know, brainstormed what, what could be, it just felt like everything was falling into place from a timing perspective and, and, you know, what he had been learning and developing in the firm, what I had been learning uh, and developing skill set wise and experience wise, and, and also what's going on in the market, right? I mean, the, we, we can't look at what's gone on over the last three or four years and not think that when every other industry has been upended, that, the fundraising and, and philanthropic services industry can be immune from that, right? So um, I, I I think you know between our personal journeys and just the the world in general, uh, it made a lot of sense to make this change now. Well, and it strikes me too, Andrew. What you're very good at is what I guess I'd call strategic networking, and and it seems to me that that's a, a, a something uh, a skill or an experience everybody listening should think about, because you never know, right? You've had this relationship for a while, and you just don't know when something clicks and an opportunity presents itself. And so, again, you and Derek represent uh, strategic networking, relationship building, that, in fact, has led you to kind of you know, yet another pinnacle, maybe, on your career journey. So uh, yeah. excited for you. Thank you. I mean, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but it, it goes back to what we said earlier, right? Relationships change everything. And this is all built on relationship. Yeah, indeed. Well, let's jump back into what uh, is not only great content you're talking about. It's, it's almost a checklist inherent, I think, in what you have analyzed around direct response fundraising tactics. And and as I looked at these things that we'll talk about, uh, Andrew, uh, these are principles that might apply to any of the tactics someone listening right now could apply to their fundraising. So, for example, you know, you talk about a lot of our listeners are using an agency of some sort or using contract help around their direct response activities. But among the cautions you have, or I guess the things you would suggest is you need to know exactly who you're working for, because maybe some of these companies are using relatively junior staff. Yeah, well, so two things on this. I, I think organizations that can afford to outsource uh, direct response fundraising should. And, and really it's because the market moves so fast on, um, on you know, things that change in donor behavior and in, in the way that you, know, you need to learn and develop these skills. And, and, and you can't, um, it, it's really hard for an organization to in-house the talent and keep them developed at the level where they can be kind of cutting edge successful. Um, and so it's a lot easier for an external agency to do that or a consultant to do that because there's there's a different financial incentive to keep those people sharp. And so I, I, I'm a big believer in outsourcing those kind of things. Uh, on the opposite side of that, 
I think it's it's you know it's smart to make sure that you have deep in-house talent when it comes to relationship fundraising because it's really hard to authentically go out and sit with a donor and ask them for a significant investment in your organization if you're not deeply embedded in in the mission of the organization itself. So uh, that just as an aside, but yes, um, you know when when I think about um, what it means to to really have a partner alongside you in, in, in direct response in particular, you know, I, I often think about two things. Are they, are they aligned missionally with who we are as an organization? Uh, and do they have the expertise necessary to, to help us be successful? Right. And so the, the point you keyed in on about the junior staff, right. Um, it, it, it's a, it's a sad but somewhat funny commentary that you know one of the ways that agencies maximize profit in their organization is by by minimizing the um, the hourly cost of labor, right? Yep. So yep. Uh, that that often leads to at least to two things: it leads to limiting the scope of a project uh, and, and just reducing the number of hours you're going to spend doing a thing, whatever that thing is. But it also leads to this idea of like, well, how can we hire junior talent? And deploy them to do the day-to-day work so that we can we can still charge, you know, whatever the amount is we're charging, but we just get more profit out of that because we have more junior people. Yep. And if the goal is to maximize agency profit, that model works very well. It works great in for-profit advertising. Um, you know, when I when I cut my teeth in this industry working at Russ Reed, uh, we we actually had a weekly hours meeting where we would go over these things and make sure: Do you have the right amount of labor? Do you have the right blend of you know low versus high level labor so that we are maximizing profit? You know, the the conversation that was missing from that is is the talent maximizing net revenue for our clients. Yes. And and this is unfortunately, you know, part of the equation that that you know a, a savvy buyer of direct response fundraising services ought to be asking the agencies that they talk to, right? So, uh, you know, in, in my shop, uh we we don't really hire junior level people. It's not because we have something against young, young people or early career people, but it's because the commitment that we make to our clients is that you know, we, we're not going to use their fundraising capacity and their mission as a training ground for the next generation of, of direct marketers. Yeah. So so our our approach is different in that, you know, everybody that sits in a seat on my team is a decade plus experience actually doing fundraising, many of them both at an agency, but also inside a nonprofit. Um, and, and so that's, a, it's just a different, you know, perspective. And, and you know, one of the things I, I remember, I, I had a client a long time ago, uh, when I was one of those junior people, who said to me, like, why do I have to talk to five people before someone can solve my problem? And, and that's kind of stuck in the back of my head. And it's, it's the exact challenge that organizations have in a model uh, like the one I described is that, you know, you you have a lot of uh, layers that have to level up to, say, a, a vice president or a director, someone who's actually got enough experience and enough authority in an agency to say, OK, here's how we're going to fix this. Right. Or here's how we're going to make good on this challenge, this problem. Uh, whereas in an environment where you just have more senior level people who have, and more leaders, you, you can democratize that decision making and fix problems and address issues and and capitalize on opportunities a lot faster than when you're using a pool of junior level talent. Yeah, well put. 
and and again, a wonderful checklist item number one is know exactly who you're working with, right? When you're outsourcing any of these contract services, whether it be direct response or frankly, a lot of nonprofits are using contract support in a lot of areas. And For sure. You're right. Yeah. The person who sold you the business may, in fact, uh, not be the person who's going to actually be doing the critical work that your organization needs. And so that's well, a good so reminder. Patton, that's another one, right? I, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been in a presentation. In fact, it just happened to me last week where, where someone says, I get that you're here and the president of the company's here and the senior this and that are here in the room for the sales meeting. Who's actually going to do the work, right? And and that's just a really uncomfortable conversation to have, you know? Um, and, and the the question behind that question comes from a place of someone, someone who's actually had to have the conversation before and said, wait a minute, the value that we pay for that we bought initially is not the value that's being delivered today. And why do I have this disconnect? So yeah. it's you know, it's a lot better to be able to say the people sitting around this table today mapping out this solution with you that you're excited about are the same people who are going to execute it and take it to fruition for you. Absolutely fair. And I'm holding up a mirror as a consultant myself. That's a fair question. Yeah, and we all again, have I, Right. And these nonprofits, they have limited resources often. So they uh, understandably have to steward their budgets and, and assure they're getting out of these investments what they deserve. Um, well, and, you know, one one thing about that is the, the buying process. You know, if I if I had to give one critique on the, the nonprofit side of this is, um, I look at requests for proposal for direct response fundraising services all the time. And I, I can't tell you how disappointing most of those RFPs are because they never ask questions that actually highlight what differentiators there are between service providers. And, and I feel like organizations don't understand business models enough to, to be able to spot things like this and even ask the right questions to right, know, right. you know, oh, I should ask a question about not just how many people will work on my account, but what experience do they have? And, and how does that align with what I'm trying to achieve and all, all those kind of things? It, it comes down most typically to who's got the lowest cost and who's got the shiniest, you know, new toy. And neither of those things are really going to serve organizations well for the long term. Yeah, that sounds like a whole other episode, Andrew. I yeah, might want to sure. explore that because that you're right. And again, we uh, not no criticism of nonprofit folks who may not know they don't know what they don't know. So yeah. their RFPs may be at a surface level, but not getting at the questions that you, in fact, uh, know they need to be asking. Um, well, in in another question, maybe that's a good segue to something you pointed out in this kind of line of of discussion. Um, there's an efficiency in limiting variation to direct response activity, right? It's just same message, send it to everybody. But you, in fact, would argue that there needs to be variation. But maybe is that something you see nonprofits are wrestling with, with the, maybe the vendors that are serving them? And the, what is the need for segmentation need to be? Yeah, no, again, it, it's a good question. And, and you know, the, the, there are certain places where you need proven consistent, you know, uh, communications, right? So, um, for example, in new donor acquisition, when you find a, let's use direct mail for now, just because it's easy. When you find a direct mail package that works really well with the audience that you're targeting in new donor acquisition, I, I would say, do everything you can not to change that package. But the difference is 
you're sending it to new people every time you mail it. Right. So, right. So it's new to them by the very nature of the fact that they're not an existing supporter where, where it becomes a struggle and where you, you have challenges is with existing supporters. And so I, you know, I've run really small volume direct mail programs, a couple hundred donors in, in a file. And I've run programs for organizations that have a million plus names in their, in their database. Right. And you know, it become it's really easy to say, oh, well, we have this lineup of, you know, 15, 20 different mailings. And we you know we, we might change a, a reply envelope color here. We might test a new, you know, uh, teaser statement on the out, outside of the envelope. Maybe we'll test who's signing the letter. But largely, it's the same, uh, same creative, same message each time we mail it. You know, we mail the June appeal every June. And we've been mailing it for five years and it performs well, blah, 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 blah. And and all of that can be true. And in fact, there are programs that are actually really, uh, they, they raise a good amount of money and they're highly efficient that way. One of the, the, the pieces of sort of, you know, that's rolling around in my mind though, and we see this with response rate, uh, and I think it's part of what contributes to our retention challenges as well in the industry is when a donor sees the same thing over and over again, it it becomes, you know, really easy to say, oh, they just want my money again. I've heard this story five times. Yep. I don't need to read this, right? Whereas if we can be creating a valuable insight and, and transferring information, storytelling, more deeply engaging, doesn't mean that every different mailing has to be, you know, one has to have, you know, gold glitter on it. And the other one has to have, you know, a, a, a pop out organ grinder monkey. I mean, I'm not saying go crazy and spend like, you know, a bunch of money to, to have really, really expensive stuff. In fact, oftentimes the cheapest looking stuff is what works the best. But, um, but what I am saying is you need to think about the fact that, you know, in a long-term relationship, if you want to maintain the freshness in that relationship, you actually have to do things that look and feel different on an ongoing basis so that the donor doesn't just get lulled into saying, oh, I'm not going to respond. I've already saying it. Right, right. Now, the counter argument to that is you will have some donors who say, you know, if I don't get the matching gift appeal in March, I'm not giving, right? Because yep. that's what I give yep. to. And so you also need a, a system and a platform that's flexible enough to say, maybe I do have this audience of donors that they're only ever going to respond to this one thing. And so I send them that in, in this time period. Right. But I have all these other donors who want and need something different in order to stay engaged. So I need to have a different version of, of my, you know, stewardship or solicitation uh, engagement, whether it's an email or a, a direct mail or whatever in that time period. So you, you, you know, the, the organizations that are doing this well have baked in that, that cost and need for flexibility into their program. When it speaks to right maintaining good uh, you know database management and understanding that when donors if you have donors that give every year in March or December or whenever you want to be responsive to that right instead of not paying attention to any individual donors and again sending the same thing to everybody at the same time yeah that, I mean uh, you know encourages the, that the data piece is so important and it's it's really easy in particularly in direct response fundraising for people to get enamored with the creative, right? It's what you yep, can see. Yep. It's what you can feel. You can have it. You can form an opinion on it. Um, you, you know, you get a gut reaction to it. 
But what's what's fascinating is that the return on investment for investing in creative is really low. And um, in, in fact, in some studies I've seen, it, it's about a one to one return. Um, wow. Whereas whereas when you invest in audience and you you find new audiences, you um, you have deeper engagement and segmentation with existing audiences. You 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 know you're able to tie an audience to a different kind of ask or offer. You can get up upwards of a twenty to one return by focusing on the audience. So we often tell our clients like you're not going to see a big creative testing plan if you work with us because creative is expensive and it doesn't move the needle. But you're going to see a ton of uh, testing recommended that you can't actually see in a mail piece because it, it's about who did we include or exclude? What story did we tell them? What program did we highlight based on what we know about them? What offer did we use? How much did we ask them for? And in what way? I mean, all of those things are, are data and programming. So they're behind the scenes, but they drive so much more of the value. And, and both you know, nonprofit organizations and agencies a lot of them anyway, tend to focus on the, the shiny objects and the creative because, again, it's easy to form opinions about. It's, from an from agency standpoint, it's, it's a lot more profitable because you can charge a lot more for, for you know, six or seven creative tests than you can for a segmentation test. Um, but what moves the needle on net revenue is the audience and the offer. Yeah, well put. And it's the quality of your strategy, right? And and certainly more argument for the segmentation and the intentional thought as to who gets what and measuring that versus the volume and the quantity me metrics that I'm afraid many of our colleagues maybe kind of get too focused on and they lose sight of what you just said. Um, Absolutely. You know, and the other thing is, this is a big argument for why organizations need to be investing and leaning heavily into um you know, more complex and sophisticated data. So, um, you know, organizations that are relying solely on their own transaction data in their database are going to get left behind uh, very quickly because the, the amount of data that's available externally and the relative cost effectiveness of that data today um, makes it actually really easy to, to add in other elements and to build models that are a lot more sophisticated than what most CRMs can can do for segmentation or what you know most individuals can program and and what we're finding is the the biggest improvements that organizations are getting is when they're building those more sophisticated models and using a lot of different external data to enrich what they already know about their supporters or even to help them find things that they had no clue about um, and they couldn't tell from their their CRM uh, you know record data and, and so you know what? What I often recommend is if, if organizations aren't investing in that kind of external modeling, uh, it, it's a it's a game changer once they start it. I love that. And and again, you and I are not certainly against good graphic design, but as I listen to you, I'm thinking, yeah, you're so right. That I think a lot of folks out there are spending a ton in investing in a fancy new brochure or new collateral right. material or new web stuff. And you're saying no, you'd be better off investing in that kind of research and analysis, right? To yeah. be more effective. I mean, it depends on the goal, right? So if we're talking about a capital campaign, then absolutely, I want to have some high level creative materials, right? right? And, and I want to be able to go sit down with a donor, whether it's in a feasibility conversation or, or in a presentation and have, you know, a more sophisticated looking, um, you know, piece of content to, to walk them through the vision for this, you know, big new initiative, right? But when it when it comes to direct marketing, time and again, we find that the, the direct marketing creative 
doesn't do anywhere near as much uh, from a positive impact perspective as as do um, data and analytics. Yep, great takeaway. And I'm underlining that in my notes, and I hope our listeners will pay close attention to that. Because again, I do not think that's always the case when there are discussions around budget time as to where we should invest. And that's yeah. uh, giving them something to think about. And of course, Andrew, I'm going to, our show notes are going to link to multiple pieces of content you've done on this uh, in terms of, because there's a, you've done deeper dives on the checklist, if you will, and some of these dirty secrets that perhaps we need to consider. But but I want to move to the, now the, the question our listeners, guys, all right, Andrew, what do I do? Where should I focus? And you had three really good, I thought, recommendations in, in some of the stuff you and I have talked about before. But number one, you're saying just invest in stewardship. So what do you mean or, or what what examples might you give in terms of where you want to see nonprofit leaders spend their time and energy? Yeah. You know, when, when I talk about stewardship, I go back to you know, sort of the the kind of original definition of that. Right. So if someone who is stewarding something. Essentially, what that means is you are taking care of something that was entrusted to you by another, right? And and I I think it's really ironic that we oftentimes in this or in in this sector have conversations about you know these are my donors, this is our money, um, you know, to to invest in this program or that program. And in reality, it's not right. It is it is hard earned money from individual donors or from corporate partners, whoever they may be. And they have said, we align with what you're doing. We want to accomplish this thing in the world. And therefore we are giving you this money for this purpose. And, um, you know, if we are good stewards of that, it doesn't just mean that we don't spend money, right? It means that we are wisely investing that capital to achieve a mission impact. And, and so when I think about stewardship, I, you know, for, for us, it's it's that piece. So doing what we said we would do and what the donor asked us to do with those funds and doing it effectively, right? Not not yeah. just kicking yeah. the can, not just putting a Band-Aid on a problem, but really um, deploying those resources in a way that solves problems. And, and then beyond that, actually reporting back and showing the donor that you know you can trust us not just with this investment that you made but with future investments because we honored your expectation and we delivered on mission in the way that we said we would right love how intentional you are with your language i think that's something again i would underscore that you yeah. describe your your pronoun usage even was very intentional there and i think that's a great takeaway for uh nonprofit leaders to think about how how does your message get conveyed in, in that terminology and of course and, and you said you want to see more impact reporting um tell the story but maybe you could expand on that what do you mean and is that a good kind of year end report or how can i do that better yeah i mean i think it's a couple of different things right so um, the first and easiest place for a lot of organizations, a lot of organizations still send out newsletters, right? So whether it's a quarterly newsletter, whether it's twice a year, whether it's email or print, I don't really care. Um, but using those newsletters, not to tell donors how amazing you are, but to tell them how amazing they are, right? And this goes counter to some of the emerging narratives about, you know, donors not being saviors and all this kind of stuff. Like I I get where that comes from, but I got to tell you, 
if you want to raise revenue to actually accomplish mission, and if your mission is more important than your personal comfort, then you've got to do it this way. Yeah. Yep. And, and and so what I mean by that is the stories in a newsletter need to say to the donor, because of you, we were able to accomplish this. Because of all of our supporters, you included, this person's life has been meaningfully and positively impacted. We've solved this problem. We've overcome this challenge, you know, um, and, and being able to not necessarily share a lot of facts and figures. It's really easy to pull together, you know, P&L data and, and throw it in a, you know, on a screen or, or, you know, on a chart. Right. But right. What motivates people and what gets people to act is a story. So the more that we can tell firsthand stories of lives changed and of, of, things made better because of the strategic investment of donors, um, the, the better off we're going to do. So that's one. But then I, I think in a very personal way, particularly with you know monthly givers, with mid-level donors, with, uh, with major donors, of course, uh, capital campaign investors, and, and even those who've um, you know left our organization in their in their legacy plan, that's where like a personal impact report becomes very important. And, and that literally often is a letter. Um, yep, it might be yep. accompanied with with some charts and graphs, but really, it's a letter that that you know warmly and authentically thanks them for their investment, articulates what you did with every gift they gave. So if they gave one gift and you asked for it for a specific purpose, you're reporting back on that purpose, right? If they gave ten gifts and you asked for them for various purposes, my expectation is that that impact report is going to highlight all those things, right? And nice. yep. and again, you know, celebrating what they've helped accomplish, talking about the partnership and the fact that you all are side by side with them in this fight, in this initiative to to do whatever good it is you're trying to do in the world, um, and and reminding the donor that it's not finished yet, right? And that's a key point because if if you celebrate so much that it feels like everything's done, then the donor you know can can say, well, great. They're in a great place. I can turn around and deploy my resources somewhere else now. And if that's true, great. Be yeah, honest. About right, it. right, right. Um, most organizations aren't in that in that space, you know. And so, so you know, what you have to do is you have to say, "This is all amazing. You've helped us get so far, and we have a vision to do even more next year. We hope you'll you'll come alongside us again." Right. Yeah. So it's it's not an Love ask, that. you know, right, but right. but it's a nod to the fact that we're not finished together yet. I. Love that. Obviously, if you know, I'm thinking of a small shop nonprofit leader, perhaps there is just the capacity to how far can I go down my list? And I'm guessing you would agree that I mean, is this a, a prioritization exercise? Uh, frankly, I need to think about if I can get to my top 50 donors or whatever the number is. I mean, I, I guess you want to do it for every donor if possible, but I'm, I'm just I guess I'm weighing the the reality yeah. of capacity. So if you're a small shop and you're doing this in-house, then absolutely, right? It, you know, Derek Baker has, uh, he's really fond of of this saying, and I, I think it is absolutely on point. And, and it is simply that big gifts add up faster, right? So, you yep, know, yep. if you have limited resources and limited capacity and you're doing this on your own, I would absolutely say, let's take our top, you know, 25 to 50 donors, whatever, whatever capacity you have, right? Um, and And focus on those first. And then as as capacity becomes available over time, then you know go further and further down the list. 
if you're working with an agency partner, this is something that an agency should be able to do. Now, you know, the, the rub is these are going to be low volume just because of the nature of, of what they are. And a right. lot of agencies aren't set up for that because it's it's more cost prohibitive to them to do small volume work than, than you know, the big, you know, thousands of, of pieces of mail at a time kind of thing. But um, you could you could work with an agency partner. We do this all the time for our clients where we're producing impact reports like this and customizing it to every donor based on their giving, based on, you know, what you know about them and what insights you have. And then either sending them out uh, on behalf of the organization or sending them back to the organization. This is another one for customization for a, a development officer or a CEO to actually put a handwritten thank you note on to, to nice. drop in a special, you know, note of encouragement, whatever it might be and make these feel like you actually know who the donor is. Yeah, it's beautiful. And and in fact, is a good segue. I guess we will finish where we started today in this discussion. Your third kind of key piece of advice is focusing on relationships, right? And the personal relationship, I guess the handwritten note is one of many examples I know you could give. Is there anything else you would advise in terms of that kind of personal relationship part of this equation? Yeah, it's funny. I I think I tick off a lot of nonprofit CEOs when, you know, one of the questions I get very frequently is, hey, what's new that we should be thinking about? And and my first right. response is always, well, you should be thinking about picking up the phone and calling your donor. And <laughs> right. when was the last right. time you did that? And then I get this like grumpy grimacing face because they know that they don't spend enough time calling donors but it doesn't feel good because it's not the same thing as being like, oh yeah, we got this great new social media tool. It's going to allow us to do this, this, and this. And, you know, we, we can push out thousands of messages, you know, nuts to all of that. Yeah. If right. If you really want to make a meaningful impact in this world for your cause, the best way to do that is to get face to face with donors who can give you transformational gifts. And that starts with a phone call, right? So. I couldn't um, agree more. And yes. Phone calls, we... highly personalized letters and, 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 you know, not for all donors. Some donors don't want it. Uh, Roy Jones, really good friend of mine, co-hosts a podcast, written some books with me, exceptional fundraiser. He has raised seven-figure gifts through text messaging. Wow. Not, not spamming people asking for money, but donors who say to him, I'm really busy. I travel internationally. I do this and this. The best way to get me is to text me. And so he knows, hey, I'm going to build a relationship with that donor one text message at a time right? But that's what's meaningful to that donor. And so this this all is predicated on actually knowing your donor. Yes. And if you don't, if you don't get proximate with your supporters, there's no way you can do this. Fantastic. Just like everything else you've shared. Once again, Andrew, I'm grateful for this and many uh, items that our listeners can ponder, I think, both in their personal kind of leadership journey as well as their organization. So for all of that, I'm grateful Lots of reasons to check out the show notes for this episode, and we'll link everything up. In fact, one more thing I'd like to put in the show notes, uh, Andrew, as you know, is a, a book recommendation. So if you got something else that has come across your bookshelf that you might share with our listeners. Yeah. So um, right now I am reading a book called The Inbound Organization. And, and you know, it's it's written really for business to business uh, readers, uh, pe people who are in kind of sales environment. But what I what I love about it and why I think that uh, nonprofits should consider it is that it's it talks a lot about moving from an environment where you are just blasting out a marketing message and and trying to attract attention that way to creating uh content and engagement that actually draws uh people to you 
right? And I think one of the biggest long-term opportunities for value creation in the nonprofit sector is creating content that people want to engage with so that you don't start the relationship off transactionally and set a tone for, okay, I, you know, I, I would be happy with you always giving $15. You start off with a meaningful engagement that helps to, you know, enlighten someone that shares an insight with them that, that builds credibility. And down the road, you know, it doesn't have to be years down the road, it could be weeks. Down the road, you might ask for a gift, but that inbound uh, uh, content engagement brings people closer to you and makes them feel like they know you and you know them in a way that transactional fundraising can't. So um, check it out. It's a good book. Excellent. And certainly consistent with the theme of our sure, conversation yeah. and getting behind the dirty little secrets that sometimes do invade our sector and our industry. Um, but I'm delighted to lift up that and all of the relationship management tools that you have offered. So Andrew, once again, thanks for joining me. Uh, thanks for joining our listeners through this podcast. Where can people go now to find out more about you and the great work you're doing? Yeah, a couple different places. So I, I will actually give you a, a link to put in the show notes where people can download uh, the Dirty Little Secrets document that we've been talking through. Um, your listeners can always find me on LinkedIn. I am there uh, regularly. Um, and if not there, uh, check us out at DickersonBaker.com uh, or email me at Andrew.Olson at DickersonBaker.com. Wonderful. Thanks, Andrew, once again for joining me on the path. Thanks, Pat, and I appreciate it. Well, I know you enjoyed this conversation with Andrew as much as I did, and I hope you came away with some practical ideas that can allow you to better assess whatever you're doing in terms of direct response fundraising right now, and maybe more importantly, give you ideas to become a better relationship builder, which is, of course, critical to all fundraising efforts. Don't forget about the show notes. They are available for this episode. It's number 198. Just go to the podcast page at patmcdowell.com where you can find out more about Andrew, his great books and content, his fantastic Rainmaker fundraising podcast, and of course, more information on the work he's doing through Dickerson Baker. As always, I hope you will share this episode with just one other person on the path. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe. Just go to the podcast page at patmcdowell.com and you will see the follow button which will assure you don't miss out on any of these weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday. Of course, if you like this episode, make sure you click on the Episodes button. You can find Andrew's previous appearance on the podcast. It was episode number 145, as well as scroll through thumbnails of some of our most popular episodes or search by topic or guest name. Thanks again for all you are doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path. <laughs>